Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been lost before? Raise your hand. Uh, kids, it's okay to raise your hand. I know your parents are next to you. Uh, you just don't have to make eye contact with them. If they have lost you in the past, that's okay. Um, so when I was about five or six years old, um, something happened significant. So let me tell you what's happened. You ever seen those TV shows and they have two things happening at the same time and they go back and forth? I'm going to try to do that. Probably won't do that well. That's why I'm not a director uh, and I've been regulated to a pastor. Um, but I can try to explain it to you the best I can. So uh, think in one location, my sister is with my dad at his work and my mom comes to pick, him up, pick her up and she sees my, uh, my mom and she's excited and makes a beeline and crosses the street to go give her a hug but did not see the car that was coming her way. Car slams on the brake, hits her leg, breaks her leg. Uh, my father loves my little sister. My father, uh, have you ever seen that movie Taken? My father would find ways to destroy people for my little sister. Uh, and I felt that all throughout life. I was just someone to do work for the family, but my sister was the one that was prized possession. And so it was my job as her older brother to always protect my sister. She's still alive today, so I've done a pretty good job. Um, but she broke her leg. My, my dad, my sister, uh, and my mom, they go, they get in the ambulance, they go to the hospital. Meanwhile, uh, this happened around 3 o'clock. I am on a bus heading home from school. I get off the bus. I go to the front door. I open it. It's locked. No one's home. Oh, they're running late. So I sit down on my front doorstep and I wait. An hour goes by. An hour and a half goes by. No one's home. Two hours go by and I'm thinking, okay. I see my friends walking around. I'm like, hey, I leave my bag. I go out, we play. And then it starts getting dark. All the parents are calling the kids in saying, it's time for dinner. And I'm like, I run home, open the door. Still locked. So I sit on my doorstep. I grab my bag. I start walking around the neighborhood. It gets darker and darker. I sit on a curb, and I'm thinking, where is everybody? And so what happens is uh, there was a car driving up, pulls in their driveway. This gentleman gets out. He, was, he lived three houses down from my house, and he says, where are your parents? And I said, I don't know. They're not home? No, no, sir. Have you eaten? No. He goes, come on in. He comes in, tells his wife, hey, we have to set another place at the table. I eat with the family. I sit down. Uh, we watch TV for a little bit. The kids now have to wash up and put their PJs on and go to bed. And they're asking, how come he doesn't get to do that? <laughs> and so I'm looking at them going, look, I have no family. I don't know why you're looking at me. And so they go inside. They're going to be put to bed. I'm still sitting there, awkwardly sitting with this gentleman, watching the nightly news. I have no idea what's going on, and I'm thinking, maybe I'll see my family there. Um, and finally, a knock on the door, and it's my dad looking for me, and they found me. And I don't know how that happened. Maybe they just started knocking on doors, going, have you seen us? Imagine, they, they, they thought they have one child 
hurt, and they're desperately trying to help her. And then they come home going, oh, my goodness, we lost our other child. Uh, and so uh, imagine that is nerve-wracking. But there was another story in the Bible with this uh, similar thing that happened. It happens in Luke chapter 2, verse 41 through 52. So hear the words of the Lord. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. And after the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth. But Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they couldn't find him... They went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, parents, three days later, uh, they finally discovered him in the temple. Sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? I think that as a parent, there would be more words than that um, to your children, correct? But this is the Son of God. Um, your father and I have been frantic searching for you everywhere, but why did you need to search, he asked. Don't talk back to your mother. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house, but they didn't understand what he meant? Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew wisdom and, uh, in, and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. And one thing we say at the end as we read scripture, we say, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, the feeling of being alone stands in stark contrast to Jesus' experience. This I don't know if you know this, but this is the only account of Jesus as a child or preteen in Scripture. And as his parents lose him, you imagine uh, the, the parents, how they must feel. They lost God for three days, right? Uh, I mean, and they said, it, it said they were pretty far away from the city before they noticed that Jesus was gone. Three days. And as uh, parents, you know, when things like that happen... You, you, you feel pretty low, right? Uh, I, I imagine what goes to, well, not I imagine, I've said this in my mind. I have failed as a parent, right? Or when I have lost a child and, you know, the first five, ten minutes is kind of like, ah, they're okay, they're somewhere. Fifteen, twenty minutes go by and go, wait, where are they? No, I don't see them. They're not in my eyesight. Oh, no. And then you start blaming other people. Why didn't you? I thought he was with you. No, he's with you. And then, you know, and then you start going through all the scenarios of the worst case scenarios in your, that can happen. And, and then you start going, I am such a bad parent. Well, you're not because uh, the kids are still with you. So, and they're alive. And so that's good. And I can imagine Mary and Joseph start blaming everyone else and themselves. It's your fault. No, it's your, I thought they were with you. And thinking, this will never happen again. It was important, you must know this, it was important for Jesus to visit the temple in Jerusalem prior to becoming 
the son of the covenant at age 13. He had to go to the temple. So what they were doing as good Jewish parents is they were taking their son to be a good Jewish boy. His parents were doing all the right things to raise him properly. So they were traveling together, and it would be common for men to travel together and women to travel together, and the children would just go back and forth, bounce back and forth between the groups. And so this was common. So each parent thought, oh, he's with his dad, or oh, he's with his mom. You can only imagine how distressed Mary and Joseph must have been after three days of searching for Jesus. But this scene must be nerve-wracking as a parent, losing your child for three, three days. And, and, and when we're going to different places, I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, I've been to places where if I can't see my children and within eyesight, I start to panic and go, where are they? And I start searching and I do my dad thing where I'm like scanning and like, where are they? And so I can't imagine going night after night after night thinking, where is my child? And I start to wonder what happens when these feelings well up. Well, so here's some questions that I have. I don't, I don't know about you, but where did Jesus sleep? Where did he go? Um, who made sure he was safe? Who fed the boy, right? I mean, he's 12 years old. Feeding a 12-year-old boy, that's a hefty feat. I have two under 12, and I go to Costco every week. So, uh, like, how, who fed him? What, what, what seemed to happen and is implied is that the community stepped up in for this boy that they didn't know. They saw Jesus and they welcomed him to the table. They listened to him. And by the time his parents caught up with him, he was amazing the people with his questions and his ideas. So what would, would people, let me ask you this, would people who come into this community, into our church, would they have the same experience as Jesus did? Or the younger generations coming in, do they feel seen, heard, known, or welcomed? I'm not talking about just the youth or college students or young adults, uh, singles, young and old, couples who don't have children, people uh, of all sorts of stages of life, seasoned members of our community, anyone who steps through the doors of our church, would they feel seen, heard, known, and welcomed? If they were lost for many days, some of us uh, will find that there will be people that will walk through the doors of this church and they've been lost for years. Who is welcoming them? No matter what generation you're a part of, this is a place for you. So what generation are you a part of? If you were born in 1901 to 1924, they call that the greatest generation. Or if you're born from 1928 to 1945, you are part of the silent generation, or maybe it's the baby boomers, or Generation Jones. Don't exactly know what that one, that, that, they one, that one they just kind of skip over. But there's Gen X, that's my generation, or Gen Y, the Xenials. They try to come up with these cool names, but I don't know if they work. Um, or if you are Gen Z, you're born from 1997 to 2010, even better, Generation Alpha. 
you were born after 2011, you are part of, they just, they get, ran out of letters, so they have to start over again. And it's like, yes, alpha. According to sociologists, a generation is clusters of people born during a given time frame. They have experienced similar life situations. They share comparable views and attitudes and differentiate themselves from other generations. Some common generational influences are easy to identify. Current events, technology fads, economic times, parenting, education, and size. There are, I, I remember this is when I realized that um, my kids are in different generation when my daughter at two years old was walking up to the TV and she was trying to swipe it. And she's like getting frustrated because they won't move. And I'm like, oh my goodness, they will never know about VHS or uh, they will never know about the almighty mixtape <laughs> or the CD. Made lots of CDs for my wife. Made C, uh, I won't talk about the mixtapes. But we, we, but you know, there will be things in the generations that people will never know about. Research from Fuller Seminary Youth Institute has revealed that young people from the ages of 15 to 29 are looking for churches to welcome them to the full table. Not just the kids' table, but to the full table. Many of us may think that, you know, people this age, they want cool, flashy, and hip. And what research has found is that people want a warm church. A church that says, you belong here. A church that is willing to accept people young and old where they can come as they are and authentically walk with each other as they grow into adulthood. So we are all adulting here. No matter what stage of life you're in, we're all adulting. And when we do it together in the light of God's grace and as the family of God, amazing things happen. Theologian uh, Miroslav Wolf says this. He says that a warm communion of the Trinity is the foundation of the warmth in the church. And so he says, we are the church. Uh, doesn't mean we meet occasionally or we cooperate in the current project from time to time, but instead we actually become part of one another. See, this sounds like what the Apostle Paul describes, the body of Christ. He says, don't you know, you know, in the Greek, you, it's not you as an individual. See, the good southern Jewish boy that he was, he says, don't y'all know that you are the body of Christ? See, in the Greek, the way that they never saw this as an individual, they said, you are an entity, a body, you belong to something. That was the way they welcomed you in the church. When you came, they say, welcome home because you are part of us now. You are the body. You belong to us. We belong to God. Romans 12.5 says this, so it is with Christ's body, we are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. So instead of seeing each other as loosely affiliated groups of spiritual persons having simultaneous individual spiritual experiences, Scripture says that we are one body. We are adopted together as one. That means we are connected by tendons and bones and muscles across generations as we work together in faith, as we work out our faith together. So we see it when we have so many volunteers at our VBS this summer, I got to 
I got a chance to come to VBS, and it was amazing to see the generations that walked through that door from children to our seasoned members of our community who were serving as VBS teachers. It's amazing seeing many of you uh, present with our children. And I knew that this is a place that can be a warm church, that is a warm church. We see it when, you, when we visit with one another in the hospital and you take meals to one another. You write cards and you welcome people. You know what? We see it last week when there are generations of people coming together and pack hygiene kits for those in need. It's a, you know what was amazing? To see children and parents and our um, other members, our older members, younger members, all coming together, packing these hygiene kits, thinking about not themselves but someone else. See, this is a glimpse of the kingdom of God. It's when we show up for one another. David Stahl, he's an educator. This is what he writes. He says, it's easy to watch people from a safe distance. It's easy to fear speaking the wrong words or feel too busy. It's easy to do little or nothing or to stay safely within the walls of what's familiar and comfortable. The people held down by loneliness rarely lift up their voices to ask for help. But if we wait until asked to show up for someone, we w the wait will run long. In most cases, such a request will never happen. It's hard to make a personal difference from a distance, even when the separation measures only a few steps. Look, there are a majority of churches here in America that are aging and shrinking. But some are growing young. Now, I'm not talking about the average age of the congregation. I'm, I'm talking about they're growing young in attitude and heart because they're engaging young and old together. See, both in Jesus' time and today's churches that grow young, they find adolescents and merging adults who need our welcome and embrace and become a warm home for them. You know, the younger generation doesn't just benefit from a warm community, but also the entire church benefits. See, just like adults around a boy, Jesus, they benefited from his presence, his questions. Uh, we all grow in vitality when we help the next generation now. And see, when I say the next generation, that's anyone younger than you. If you're 90 years old and you see someone who's 80, guess what? That's the next generation. If you're 50, you see someone who's 40, that's the next generation. If you're 10 and you see someone who's 2, that is the next generation for us. The mistake we can make is that we keep saying the next generation is the future of the church when we know that's not true. It's just not. The next generation is the church, and so are you. That's us. Amen? If you believe that, say amen. Amen. So what if one of the metrics to determine if that is true of us is that we want to champion the next generation now and, and not some distant future is how we extend hospitality to the generations around us. From old to young, from cradle to grave. The good news for all of us is that Jesus intends to pull us together Jesus reconciles us to God. Jesus also reconciles us to each other. 
You know, I used to think that we need to be a certain way to grow younger. But these are just myths. You know, they did research of 2,000 um, people from ages 12 to 25. And they said, and these are the myths that they busted. That in order for a church to grow young and to be uh, the church that is warm and welcoming uh, for certain generations, that it needs to be a certain size. Not true. That it needs to be in a trendy location or region. That it needs to meet in a warehouse. Not true. Although that's cool, but not true. Um, it needs to be an exact age. Not true. It needs to be non-denominational. Not true. It needs to have the cool quotient. Right? Not true. It needs to have a big modern building. Not true. It needs to have a big budget. Not true. It needs to have only just a contemporary worship service. Not true. It needs to have watered-down preaching and teaching. Not true. In fact, that's, they're looking for the opposite. They want something real and authentic. I'm looking for something real and authentic. And let me tell you something. If I'm a part of the church... I want something real and authentic. I don't know about you, because I want to be real and authentic. We can be young at heart, yes. We can be a warm church, and we can welcome everyone to the table. Because the next generation is not the future of the church. They are the church. Whatever age or stage of life that we are at, God calls us to be a blessing to the next generation. So there's three things we can do. One, we can love the next generation. We can pray for them because that's the most, one of the most powerful things that we can do as a church and as people is we can pray for the next generation and we can teach them by being a model for them to connect with them so that this teaching and the models that we have will not depart from them. Proverbs 22, 6. I don't know about you, but for me, growing up in school, um, I remember my kindergarten teacher who took the time to sit with me I remember my third grade teacher. I remember my fifth grade teacher who when I got in trouble, which happened a lot, she pulled me aside and said, boy, what are you doing? And she set me straight, but she loved me. And I remember that love more than anything. I forgot all the things that she taught me, but I never forgot how I felt as a teacher, how she made me feel of what it means to grow into being an adult. We have that opportunity day in and day out. Because as Romans 12, 5 says, so it is with the Christ's body, we are many parts of one body and we will all belong to each other. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks to you for who you are. We pray for the generations that are behind us. We pray for the generations that are in front of us. We cannot live this life and, be, and call ourselves the church or to usher in the kingdom of God without one another. So, Lord, may we be a church that is authentic and we are willing to walk with one another, that we will not discount those who go before us and we will not dismiss those behind us. But we will take, as you take us by the hand, we also take one another by the hand and we walk together because they are not only power in numbers, but there is power in what you do as the body of Christ. 
And so will you do that here in us, Lord? Would you give us a vision and a mission to understand the generation now is important more than ever? And we're called to be together with one another. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name.